0: But listen, we're really, we really are glad that you're here. Uh, we have a lot of stuff taking place. Mike already shared some of this, but we're, we're kind of going into summer. In Florida, it's felt like it's been summer for like the last month, but we're going officially now into summer. Teachers are celebrating. Kids are excited for a couple of days, and they get bored real quick, and uh, parents aren't sure about summer coming. But summer is here, and so if you're paying attention on social media, you see all the graduations and award ceremonies and all that stuff. And, and as Michael shared, we had our own graduation this past Wednesday night with, with Fight Club and Fight Club. A pink The cool thing was that we've been doing this for a year and a half, but this vision started about three years ago. We began having conversations, and we started Fight Club a year and a half ago, and then this semester Fight Club Pink, some ladies came and said, hey, we want something like that for us. And obviously, by the amount of graduates they had, the ladies killed the men in our competition, I guess. Not that it was competition, but 23 women graduated from Fight Club Pink. But the really cool thing and the encouraging thing is that we had over 50 people start out in Fight Club and Fight Club Pink. Now, there's accountability, and there's different things that take place, and because of that, there's integrity even in the people that struck out during Fight Club and Fight Club Pink, but the cool thing was that over a third of the people come here on a regular basis on a Sunday morning, chose to participate in Fight Club and Fight Club Pink, and and, and the challenge now is, now that that semester's over, to continue to walk in integrity as we go into the summer, as our schedules get looser, as vacations hit and all that stuff, to still continue to to try to push ourselves to grow spiritually, to grow physically, and, and to grow in terms of our relationships so don't let the summer months be a a season slump when it comes to those things because we want to continue to walk in integrity in those areas Today we launch out on something a little bit different. Uh, if you're around Rich Point Church on a frequent basis, you know that we tend to have like these big series where we talk about a topic for four or five or six, up to eight weeks on a particular area. Uh, but we're kind of in between series right now. I will say this, in two weeks we're going to launch out on a, on a brand new series we're going to start here that I think could be the game changer. I know we say that a lot, maybe it's overused, but in two weeks we start off with whatever it takes. I can't wait to talk about the content of that series. But before we get there, The next couple of weeks, we want to slow things down a little bit and just talk on a particular topic and and really to look at two back-to-back passages in Scripture that for me might be my two favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Now, I'm not sure as a pastor you should have favorite chapters of the Bible because we should love the whole Bible. But back when I was in college, I had a professor. His name was Mr. Carver. He actually spoke here last spring at Ridgepoint Church. Uh, But Mr. Carver had a big influence in my life, and he actually taught us part of our biblical studies division is we had to have two consecutive years of New Testament Greek to learn how the Bible was written and all that stuff. And we actually ended up taking, uh, I said two semesters, two years. We ended up taking three years with Mr. Carver. And the final year, we just started to translate the book of Philippians from uh, the Koine Greek language that the New Testament was written in into our, our modern language. And I started to 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 really dig into Philippians 2 and Philippians 3. And ever since that point in my life, uh, God did this work in my life where I just chose to to study this passage. And every time I turn back to this, like I'm so challenged, I'm so encouraged by it. That I said, as we have a little bit of a break, I want to go back and look at these two passages. And I want to talk on the topic of of humility in our life. Now, humility is one of those things, it's kind of like a topic like meekness, where it doesn't sound really exciting. It's not like everyone goes around giving each other high fives. Yes, today at church, we got really excited talking about humility because it kind of goes against culture. Culture is teaching us these days that everything should be about ourselves, everywhere in culture, whether it's stuff we see on media, whether it's stuff that you're watching in, in sports, everything, we live in this very narcissistic culture where everything is focusing on us, uh, the, the way we live, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we dress, uh, everyone wants to draw attention to themselves, That's the only reason I can explain for men rompers, it went crazy this week, it's like everybody wants to, to <laughs> some people are like I have no idea what you're talking about, but it's like people want to draw attention to themselves and, and hey, hey, look at what what I'm doing. And Jesus came into a culture that was, if at all possible, even more self-absorbed, and watch this for a second, even more sex-crazed than our culture is today. I think sometimes the church can look at culture and condemn culture, not realizing that the culture that Jesus came into was was deemed by most experts as even more corrupt than than the culture we have today. And so Jesus came and said, listen to this. The way that you do life... Instead of living for yourself and living for your purpose, you should deny yourself, you should take up your cross, and you should follow me. And this flies directly in the face of everything that we know, because like I mentioned last week, you and I were born, we're born with a nature that has a predisposition to make bad choices. We're born with a, with a truly with a sin nature. And because of that, from the time that we're born, we have a natural tendency to focus on ourselves at the expense of other people. Uh, For instance, if you have a toddler walking around, you know you don't have to teach that toddler to be selfish. They tend to choose to want things for themselves, and we have to teach them how to share to give to the other person. And we continue to battle that for the rest of our lives. Because you and I, we have a tendency to be very self-absorbed, very focusing on self, and very wanting to build up our kingdom. And so Jesus comes and says, I want to flip that on its head. And I want to teach the church, I want to teach the people that are following me to deny themselves and take up their cross. And as the church is being planted, leaders like the Apostle Paul start to speak. He says, instead of looking out for your own interests, don't look out only for your own interests, but also look out for the interests of others that are around you. There's a study done just fairly recently on a group of people that were put in a classroom, and they were told that they had to write an essay. And the essay was going to be evaluated by the other peers in that classroom. Now, I don't know how much time elapsed, but they wrote their essays. And when it was done, they eventually started to, to hand those out to evaluate. And they didn't know what the study was about, but the study was, was really about how do people react in, in bad situations. And so the people conducting the study started to go around to the people who had written these essays. And they started to individually tell them, hey, by the way, So-and-so graded your essay, and they said it was the worst essay they'd ever read. And they lied. They made the whole thing up, but they want to see the response. And here are these people who were innocent, who never said these things, but the, the study was done to watch how people responded in that situation. And the thing was that many of the people who were part of that study, as as they reacted to the the other people who they thought had given them a bad evaluation, they reacted not just in in anger and and, in their word choices, but there actually started to be a physical response, whether consciously or subconsciously, they couldn't determine. But there was a physical response where they started to put up physical barriers and they started to almost be a little bit rough with the person who gave them the evaluation, even though that person at the end of the day was really innocent of it. And the study that was done came to find out the people who had the most negative response to the person they thought had written this essay were the people who sky- scored the highest on a narcissistic scale that they'd done as well. It wasn't so much based upon their self-worth, but it was based upon how much did they view themselves and how, much, how selfish were they. And the more selfish they were, the more physical their response was. At the end of the day, most of us have that, that, that desire inside of us to, to build up ourselves and to say, I want for myself. And Jesus comes and flips out on his head and says, we have to look out for the interests of the people around us. And that's what the church came to do. The church said, we want to look out for the interests of the people around us. And we want to come in, in humility, and we want to change the mindset of the way the world, the way culture is, is moving. And so with that being said, if you have your Bibles, open up the Philippians chapter two. If not, the words going to appear up on the screen. But in Philippians chapter two, uh, Paul is, is writing to the churches in the city of Philippi, and as he writes to this church, he's 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 using one term over and over and over again. In fact, it's only four chapters. It's a really short short book. You could read it in probably less than less than probably fifteen or twenty minutes. You could read the whole book of Philippians. But over and over, Paul expresses, I want your life to be filled with, with joy. That, that our, as, as Christians, we should be, joy should be a, at a premium in our lives. Like we want to walk around, and there's a difference between joy and happiness. And he says, I want your life to exude joy. I want you to be about being joyous. And he uses those words, joy and joyous and, and rejoice. Over and over and over in the context of Philippians chapter uh, the, whole, the, whole, the whole book, but Philippians chapter 2 in particular. So in that, we pick up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. We don't have time to read all of chapters 2 and 3 uh, in the next couple of weeks, but I'd encourage you to take a couple of minutes, do that uh, throughout the week as, as we have a chance to study it on Sunday mornings. But in Philippians chapter 2, we see Paul writing. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ... And that word if connects with all the other conditions that are mentioned here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy. Now let me say this. When we speak in our English language, the word if is a word of of condition, if, if I say, if A, then B will happen, there's not an assurance that, that letter A is going to happen, but there's a there's, there's conditional statement that if A happens, then B is going to happen. If we come to, to negotiate a particular, maybe I want to sell a bicycle to you, and I say, okay, if you give me $100, I'll give you the bicycle. There's not an assurance that you're going to do that. We're negotiating, we're saying it's conditional upon the if statement. Here we're introduced an if statement that in verse 2 we see here's the response of that if, here's the, the follow-up of that condition, but the difference, there's a big difference in how the, the language is structured here when the Bible was first written. In, in the Greek language that the New Testament was first written in, there was a condition that was, that the, the way that the, the, the sentence was structured, that when it was read in this particular verse, in multiple verses like this, it could be read not as a, as a word of, of condition, but as a word of assurance. If, and I'm assuming that it is true, is how that word would be described or how that word would be translated. So when Paul is writing here, he's saying, so if, and I'm assuming there is all of these things. So if, and I'm assuming there is encouragement in Christ if, and I'm assuming there is comfort and love, if, and I'm assuming there is participation in the Spirit, if, and I'm assuming there is affection and sympathy, he's saying all of those things, there's a general assumption that all of those things are true. So what are those things? He begins by saying that there's encouragement in Christ. For the church, especially in this day, life was difficult. Today, for most of us, life is difficult. We deal with things that we wish we didn't have to deal with. There's pain, there's sickness, there's, there's even death. And we deal with those heavy topics on, on a pretty frequent basis. And, and so how do we make it through? How do we persevere? We persevere because I know that because of the resurrection of Jesus that today I have hope. That because of that, however difficult life becomes, there's encouragement in Christ. And because of that encouragement, it's a real encouragement. In a world that is full of false hope, Jesus comes and he offers substantial real hope. And so Paul begins by saying, if and I assume there is encouragement in Christ, that Christ comes to be an encouragement for us. And he says, if, and I'm assuming there is comfort in love. From the time we're young, we realize the vital role that love plays in our life. If we have a toddler and they fall down, sometimes they're not even hurt, but the, the, the event that took place scared them. And so they start to cry, and what they want when they're crying, is so often they want the affection of, of their mom or the affection of their dad. Say, so if someone would just hold me and, and, and give me a pacifier, like I'd be good. I'm, just, I'm afraid right now. And what I want to experience is I want to experience love. I want to experience warmth. I want to know that, you're, that someone's there for me. When we become adults, it doesn't get any easier. Our falls are a little bit different. Sometimes they're not as obvious. But what we desire is to know, there are people around us that can be an encouragement, that can comfort us with love, that comfort comes from that love. This is if, and I'm assuming there is participation in the Spirit. For a lot of us, even though it might be taught the correct way for most of our life, for a lot of us, we misunderstand what the Christian life is about. And we think, if I'm just a good person, if I just make proper choices, that that's what being a good Christian is about. That I'm going to let my conscience be my guide. And, and when we read the actual kind of what Jesus did, Jesus came to transform our lives, not just to make us good people, but that at the moment that we truly give our lives to Jesus, at the moment, not just the moment I raise my hand or, or say a prayer, But the moment I recognized, man, Jesus really did come to die and to change me, the moment that I realized that and truly become a follower of his, the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God comes and he lives inside of us. And that he wants to actively participate in our lives. He isn't just our conscience that tells us, hey, you shouldn't do these things. but He's the Spirit of God that says, I want to lead you. The path that you're supposed to go, I want to lead you to that path. I want, to, I want to walk with you and, and, and speak truth in your life. That when you can do something that only you can do, that I want to prepare you to be able to do that. And the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and says that he wants to participate, to actively participate in the spirits in our life. And they says, and if there is any affection, and if there is any sympathy, so all these if statements that are general statements of assumption are followed up by here's what happens. If all those things are true, here's what happens. Verse two, complete my joy. Complete my joy. The theme of of Philippians is this idea that joy and rejoice. He says, here's what would complete my joy as the person who Paul planted the church in Philippi. He says, I'm the first pastor of this church. Here's what would complete my joy as a pastor of the church. That you would be of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, listen, if you want to know what would make me more joyous than anything else in my life, it's that the church would be of one mind and one accord. That the church, and, and, and here he's speaking specifically to a church in one city, but, but even more so the church universally. Man, if the church could move forward, I heard the number this week, I think they said are six billion people in the world, and half of them have never heard the name Jesus. Like we have a mission that's out in front of us, but we spend so much time bickering and fighting about things that don't matter. And Paul says, "Here's what would complete my joy. If we as a church would have the same mind, if we would have the same love, if we'd be in full accord, if we'd say, "Man, I know what our vision is, and I want to move forward with that vision, because it's not my vision. It's our vision. Michael referenced this earlier, but unfortunately, in the first service this morning, we had a real-life example of this taking place. Uh, right about this point in the message this morning, uh, Kevin was sitting back in the back where he normally sits, and if you don't know who Kevin is, he's the one who's often in the wheelchair that greets people in the first service, and, and all of a sudden, he just kind of slumped over, and, and people rushed, his family group was around him, and, and where he's sitting here talking about it, I'm like, that's exactly how the church responds, and it was scary, and it gave a weightedness to that, to that service that was difficult. But the church responded, and we had nurses here who responded, and eventually uh, the ambulance showed up and took him away. But that's how we respond as a church, is when people are in need, we meet that need. We have one love for each other, and we long to serve each other. And so Paul is writing, saying, here's my joy. Here's what would make my joy complete, that you be of the same mind, that you'd be of one accord. And then he says, okay, let me get into how we begin to do that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, we read about the goal of humility. In verse 3, it says this Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing just to seek out for yourself. Don't be conceited. Don't look for self aggrandizement and self centeredness and, and focusing on what I want. But instead, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. He says, here's a picture of humility. That it's not about you, but that when you start to run into people that are around you, you count them as more significant than yourself. And that flies directly in the face of a culture that says, when we watch sports and we watch stuff that's in the media, everyone's about focusing on self and making attention for ourselves. And, And Paul writes and says, instead of doing that, count others as more significant than yourself. Now, here's what I genuinely believe, is that most of us, we say, well, that's what I want to do. Like, like, that's my intent from the very beginning, is, is, is I really mean to do that, but, but life gets busy. And, and tomorrow I'm going to start back, and maybe i got to go to my work week, and, and life's going to be really busy, and I get home, and it's prepping dinner, and getting the kids ready for school, and all, all that stuff that takes place. And I always intend... To count others as more significant than myself, but but I fall back in that trap of I get stuck in the rat race of life, and because of that, I tend to focus on myself at the expense of others. And so here's the key word, and here's a challenge to us. I want to give us a specific challenge this morning. If we're going to get this, the key word is we have to be aware. It isn't just man. Like I know I should do this, but but if I'm not aware of the people around me, if I'm not paying attention. You see, I drive my car, and, and there are thousands of people that drive by me on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. Thousands of people drive by, and they have difficult lives, and they have despair in their life. And the problem is I'm so focused on myself that I'm not aware of that need. And so I want to do something a little bit different. If you have your wallet, or ladies, if you have your purse, if, if you have just a, and guys, if you have a purse, we have to talk after the service, just saying. Um, but but, but if, if, if you have that, if you have a dollar in your wallet or in your purse, I want you to take that out right now. Take out that dollar. Just a simple exercise. Don't worry about it. You're going to hold on to that dollar. You're not going to do anything crazy with it. But I want you to put this in a place you don't normally keep it. Normally have it in our wallet and in our purse. Uh, maybe if you have like a, a pocket like in, in your shirt or you just put it in your pocket where you're going to remember where it is. And I want you to, I want you to take this dollar this week because something as, as little as a dollar could in some ways change someone's week. So I want you to hold on to that dollar. Leave that dollar someplace where you don't normally have it, where maybe you keep it in a pocket, where you don't normally keep things, and every time you feel it this week, I want that to serve as a reminder that man, I want to be aware of the people that God puts me in contact with. Friends, relatives, complete strangers. I want to put this dollar in a place that it just serves as a constant reminder. And maybe there's going to come someone up to me this week that says, hey, man, I, I, need, I need money for food or I need, I need money for gas. And I know sometimes we're suspect, but say, man, if I'm aware of people around me, that there's a chance for me to, to meet a need, then I know, man, I got that dollar set in a place just so I could be able to do that. And maybe it's something as, as simple as that. Maybe it's something different. But to keep this as a reminder this week to say, man, I want that to serve just as a reminder that I need to be aware in my life. Because Paul's writing saying, here's what I want you to be aware of. Here's what it means. Here's the goal of humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four then says, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now here's what I've seen overwhelmingly out of people in general. I, I love to just Kind of sit and, and, and watch people and, and hang out. Like, have you ever had a busy place, like maybe an airport, and there are hundreds and thousands of people walking by? Like, it's just it's cool to sit and watch and observe how people relate to each other and, 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 and all of that stuff. And, and, and as I watch people for 40 years, I've seen that people tend to, when it comes to the topic of humility, they tend to err on one side or the other. They tend to err on, on one side. Most of us err on the side of we want to just look out for our own interests. There's no humility. It's all pride. It's all selfishness. And I want for myself. And on the other side, there are people who have what I call this, this false spirituality where they say, I'm, I, I don't want to live for myself, and so I'm just going to live what is known as like an ascetic lifestyle. I'm just going to give up on all the trappings of this world. I'm going to live a very simple lifestyle, which isn't bad. But the challenge is that sometimes people think that because I live this very simple lifestyle, because I live this very ascetic lifestyle, because I give up on the trappings of the world, that my living this lifestyle is somehow going to satisfy God. Listen, there's only one thing that satisfies God in our life, and that's Jesus. If we think that by me living this very simple life, this very ascetic lifestyle, that that's gonna bring a, a pleasure to God. Now, some of those things might be valuable, but those things in and of ourself, because of our sin nature, which we've referenced, we have a need for, for salvation. We have a need for Jesus to come and to die in our place. And so it isn't living all for, uh, for, for myself and, and, and being proud and, and, and living for that, my purpose, but it also isn't just at the end of the day saying, well, I'm going to live a very simple lifestyle. Because for a lot of people that I've seen that live that lifestyle, they brag in their lifestyle. And they're trying to seek just as much attention out of life. Jesus called out the Pharisees. He says, listen, when, when you pray, you pray in a street corner for everybody to hear you. When you give, you give in a showy way so that everyone, everyone knows what you're giving. When you fast, you do so in a way that your face is drawn. And, and you're doing it for the attention. And you're just as wrong as the people who have pride in their life. Like both of those are wrong. So what is humility? What is true humility? In Mere Christianity, a tremendous work, C.S. Lewis wrote this. One of the greatest thinkers when it comes to the Christian life, C.S. Lewis described humility. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. See, there are people who have made a terrible concept, a terrible view of their self, and they think, man, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I don't have any purpose, but, but somehow they think that that's spiritual. And C.S. Lewis says, no, it's not thinking less of yourself. Like, we're a child of God. If that's where you're at, if you struggle with security, realize that because of your position, if you're a believer, because of your position in Christ, that you have a standing. When I stand, I don't stand in pride because it wasn't anything that I did. I stand in humility because Jesus did it all for me. But as I do that, my challenge as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, is to live in a way that I think of myself less. So we see the the goal of humility in verses 3 and 4. Then we see the example of humility. Watch this, verse 5. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, the example of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, verse 7 says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I want us to see this because when we believe what the, what the church believes universally, what, 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 what correct teaching in the church universally believes, we believe that Jesus was, is, and always will be fully God. God. And then when he came here to earth, he took on the form of man and he had both a a divine nature, but he also had a human nature and he exists 100% fully in both of those natures. That means when he lives now, he is 100% God and as he lives now, he's 100% man. But when he came here to earth, the Bible says here in Philippians that he emptied himself or he made himself nothing. That he emptied himself of that. It's what's known as the kenosis of Jesus. That when he came here to earth, even though he's God and he knows everything, he went to school just like we go to school. He learned just like we learn. And we look at that and say, that's, that's curious. He was God. He knew everything. Why did he have to do that? Even later on, when, we, when, when, he, when the disciples are asking when he's going to return, Jesus says, even I don't know when I'm going to return. He's God. He knows that, but yet in his human nature, he chose to empty himself of what is known as the outward expression of his divinity. He says, I'm emptying myself of that outward expression. He made himself nothing, take not the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then in verse 8, we see the example of humility at, at, its, at, its, at its peak. And... Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He says, here's the picture of humility. That Jesus, who is fully God, would come here to earth to embrace us, to take on human form. And that in doing that, he would go and and die in our stead. He would go and die in our place. Why? Because humility pictures the good of the other person above their own good and so jesus said let me live out the example for the world because it's through my living and dying my resurrection that their encouragement that their hope is there it's through jesus that today that we have hope but it's also through jesus that today we have the example of here's how we're supposed to live here's how we're supposed to do life if there are people around us that have need then it's our response to say in humility i want to serve others and view them as more significant than myself Every single life that I come in contact with, that life matters to God. If it matters to God, it shouldn't matter to us. I want to go back and reread those couple of verses out of the message. I think it's, it's, it's interesting. The message is kind of, it's not an actual translation, but it's kind of an amplified version. And I just love how it writes this, this particular passage. It says this. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. He says, here's what Jesus did for us. And in doing that, he not only provided the sacrifice that gives us access to heaven and the Father himself, But he set the example to say, if you're going to be a follower of mine, here's the expectation. That's the goal of humility. And finally, the next couple of verses, we see the result of that humility. Verse 9 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the result. Because of what Jesus did, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, here's the result of the humility. Jesus humbled himself. He died in our stead. And by doing that now, because of that act, The Father has lifted him up and he says every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus himself is Lord. Because of his humility, we see the result of that humility is glorification. And the same thing is true of us. If right now the way that we live our lives is countercultural. If right now we say, man, I'm, I'm sick of living because I desire to have joy in my life. Like right now, I want to have joy. You know the people who have the least amount of joy? in their lives right now, are the people who are the most selfish. They want for themselves, they want for themselves, and the more stuff they have, the more frustrated they become that the stuff doesn't bring satisfaction. Jesus says it's not about us. It's about looking out for the needs of people around us. But that's where we start to discover Joy. Not only was it the example that Jesus said and, and the promise to Jesus, but the next couple of verses, it actually gets into that, okay, if we follow that example, the example of Jesus. It says in verse 12, we'll get to up on the screen in a little bit, but in verse 12 it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to well and to do his good pleasure. But now watch this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Here's our response. We see the example of Jesus, but now here's our response. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you, the church, may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now watch this. I want us to see this. If you get nothing else, get this right here. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the midst of a generation that's just as focused on themselves, he says, here's what I want out of the church. If you humble yourselves, here's the response. You're now going to shine as lights in the world. He says, man, you're going to humble yourself and do things uh, not self-pleasing but looking out for the interests of others. You're going to serve Jesus. And, And the way that you do that... In the midst of a very dark world, you're going to begin to shine as light in the midst of that dark world. When I was in college, I was a student at University of Florida. When I felt like God called me into ministry, and I thought that was the craziest thing. I thought, man, I, I don't like speaking in front of people. Like, like God, there has to be somebody who knows how to do this stuff a whole lot better than I do. Like, it, was, it, it scared me to death. Like, I could never imagine I'd be the one up on stage doing stuff like this. And I was sitting there at, at 19 years old, and... God kept impressing this upon my heart, and I kept kind of fighting that, saying, God, there has to be somebody else to do this. Finally, as I started to surrender to, to God's call, I transferred down to a Christian college, a small Christian college in Clearwater, Florida. I started to go to school there, and, and pretty early on, I met some, some really, really good friends. And one of my friends said, J.J., I know you used to play baseball. You should try out for a college baseball team. I thought, man, it's been, it's been a year since I played competitively. Like I'm not sure I have to knock the rust off a little bit, but, but sure, I'll try and so I went to all the preseason conditioning and all the workouts and, and really didn't think I was going to make the team. And I was surprised when a coach came to me and said, JJ, you're on the team. And not only are you on the team, but I want you to consider being our chaplain for this year. I said, well, what, does, what does that even mean? Like, I didn't grow up going to church and, and I'm kind of new. As a relatively new believer, I've been saved for about a year and a half. And I said, What does that mean? He's like, Well, it just means like after practice, you'd do devotions together with the team and you kind of provide this spiritual direction for, for the team. And again I thought there has to be somebody that is better at this than like this is all new to me. What do you mean, coach? I prayed about it, came back, said, All right, coach, if if you think like I think there has to be somebody else, but if you want me to do this, I'm gonna do this. And I didn't know what that looked like. And so I started praying and preparing devotions for practices, and and a couple of weeks in, I challenged our guys. I came and I said, guys, I think it's important, and I don't know what this actually means because I didn't grow up going to church, but I think we should each have a verse that's really significant to us that we can claim throughout this season. Well, for me, I later on became known as as a life verse, but I didn't even realize at that that point in my growth. I said, guys, I want us all to pick out a Bible verse that means something to us. And so I went through the process myself, and I came upon James 4.10. And James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So I shared that with our team. I said, guys, this is kind of my verse now. This is my verse I'm going to hold on to. That's who I want to be. I did something different that year. I said, a lot of times baseball players like to, at the beginning of the season, set certain goals for their team. I said, I want to set some goals. And a lot of times it's, you know, I want to have a batting average at 270, and I want to hit 20 home runs, and I want to hit 70 RBIs, whatever their, their goals are. They set those goals, and they write those goals in their, in their cap as a constant reminder to them, this is what I want to accomplish this year. So that year I took my cap, and I wrote James 410 on it. I said, if nothing else this year, here's what I want. I want to humble myself in God's sight. And I want him to be the one to lift me up. Not myself, because I'm very bad at that. But if I humble myself and realize, God, the only reason I'm here is because of you. The only reason I have any standing at all in front of you is because of what Christ did for me. If I realize that, it gives me my place and my purpose. Enough so that a year and a half ago when we started Fight Club, we had to make these, we had these blocks of wood that we had to put different things on. I put my my verse on it, James 4.10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Luke 14.11 says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he that humbles himself will be exalted. The goal of the Christian life is to have true humility. Humility. To say, I want to I experience the joy of Jesus in my life. I want to experience the joy of serving other people. And the very bottom of that scale is, is having any self-pleasure myself. Because I want to look out so much for the interest of others. That that becomes my passion. That that becomes my focus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, first of all, for the sacrifice of Jesus. If it wasn't for him and, and what he did for us, we'd have no hope at all. There'd be no encouragement. There'd be no spirit indwelling us as believers. There'd be none of that. But God, because of his sacrifice, he makes it possible today for us to have joy. And joy isn't found in selfishness. Joy isn't found in all the stuff that this world begs for us to have. Our joy is found entirely in Jesus. And to live the life that he lived, to sacrifice for the people around us, and to to give our, our lives the way he gave his life. Bless us for that challenge today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.